Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. I was reminded this morning of Isaiah chapter 55, verse um, what is it? Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, if you haven't been here uh, every week, or this is the first time you've stepped into our kind of our short five week series, we are looking at change. Kind of the theological term that we would be placing on this is called sanctification. Or if you want to even get more specific, it's progressive sanctification. And that is, it's this idea of progressing and becoming more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And yet we are discovering that to do that is surprising ways that God has made it, is going to make it happen. Um, it's not our ways or our thoughts, and so uh, we've got to be continually looking to his word, to his revelation to us. So when we say thanks be to God, thanks be to God that we have his word because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we need him to be helping us to understand what it means to what it means to change. My name is Rob Spikestra. I'm one of the elders here, one of the pastors here. And so it's my privilege to be able to come into the fourth week. So let me just kind of remind you where we have been. Uh, the theme overall is simply, uh, how do we change? The first week is, that we had, and I suppose just to simply set uh, realistic expectations, is uh, gospel change is slow change. And then the second week, uh, gospel change is heart change. And that is that uh, we're not getting after behaviors, just getting at what we can see, but rather we know that what God wants to do is he wants to change our hearts, the root of where all of our actions come from. So gospel change is heart change. And then last week, uh, we looked at the fact that, God, uh, that gospel change is God's work. And we were looking at this passage that we read this morning, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, particularly verse 13. And now, returning to this same key passage, uh, we're going to focus in on verse 12. So let me read that again for you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me pray. So, Father, um, we have heard from your word already that your ways are not ours and your thoughts are not our thoughts. So Father, we have a good chance of getting it wrong to this morning. Apart from your Holy Spirit, revealing to us through your word how you want us to change. And so if God, we would pray that you would be doing a work in our minds and our hearts, Father, that not only would we understand these things, but Father, that we would understand how good these things are, how good you are, that you would change our affections, that we would love the right things, that we would love the right one. So God, we pray, please do that miracle work uh, in our lives uh, this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, going back to our passage here, 
Um, if we could strip away all of the explan- explanatory clauses and isolate the command, we could simply uh, read it this way. My beloved, work out your own salvation. Now, where I want to take us here this morning is uh, with this bottom line. The great goal of change is the shining forth of the glory of God in the holiness and happiness of God's people. So the great goal of change is the shining forth of the glory of God in the holiness and happiness of his people. So how do we get there, or how do we work out our own salvation? So I want to answer, uh, I want to ask three questions and try to answer these three questions. First of all, what do you do to work out your own salvation? What do you do to work out your own salvation? And then secondly, how do you work out your own salvation? And then why do you work out your own salvation? So let's begin with the first question. What do you do to work out your own salvation? Now, I hope that even in listening to this verse or seeing it or even in asking that question, that you're getting a little bit of dissonance. That I hope, I hope is going on in your heart if you've been at Sacred City for even a few weeks. Because we sing about, we speak about, we have a liturgy that is causing us to practice a Christ-centered life. But, but it seems to be that as we're reading uh, these words, it seems to be uh, that Paul is maybe getting it wrong here, and he's saying, no, you have to have a work-centered life. Work out, work for your salvation, we might even think he's saying. It sounds a lot like that. In other words, Paul seems to be command, commanding something that's uh, maybe wrong, My hope and prayer is that by the end of this message, the Spirit of God will impress upon your soul that Paul's choice of phrasing was truly God's choice of phrasing so that work out your own salvation is not contrary to the gospel, uh, but is the natural result of the gospel. So going back to the question, when Paul says, work out your salvation, what do you do? Well, it seems to be clear here in verse 12 uh, that we are to obey. We are to obey. He says there, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Work out your own salvation. Obedience and working out our salvation seem to go hand in hand, and so there are two types of obedience that if we are to obey, there will be change. One type of obedience is killing sin. Killing sin. And the second type of obedience is pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness. So let's look first at that first type of obedience. And it's just simply this, killing sin. So last week, uh, Corey Johnson, uh, using this same passage, reminded us that when we see the word, uh, therefore, it demands for us to refer back to what has already been said. And so he took us back to uh, verses 6 through 11. Uh, But we find there in the middle, verse 8, where Christ is obedient. Christ's obedience seems to be crucial to our obedience in terms of the commands in our verse. But if we go back even further to find Paul's words on the necessity of obedience as 
true of those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to go all the way back to verse 27, where we see both a call to kill sin and to pursue or strive for holiness. So you've got to go back to chapter 1, verse 27. I'll read it for you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That seems to be kind of pursuing holiness and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So... If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by, again, a command, being of the same mind, having the same love. Seems, sounds like we're supposed to be pursuing holiness here. Being in full accord of one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Seems to be killing sin. But in humility, count others more significant than your others. Let each one of you not look only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others, killing sin, pursuing holiness. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and then we go on with 6 through 11. Or go all the way down to verse 14, two more killing sins. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In order for the Philippian Christians to be obedient, they must do some killing of sin within their own hearts. Now, why do I say Christians must kill their own sin? Why can't I just simply say Christians should kill sin within their hearts? Well, the must of sin killing is seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. So turn to, in your Bibles, or have it on the screen here, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, now we know that the life there that Paul is referring to is eternal life. And we know that by the contrast that he is making here in those who are living in the flesh, that is, in their sinful desires, because we know that uh, this is a spiritual death, and we know that because everybody dies whether they kill sin or not. So we know that he's referring to a spiritual death here or a spiritual life here for those for those who are killing sin. So if you embrace the gospel, you must be about killing sin in your life. But not only are we to be on the defensive against sin, we must be on the offensive and pursuing holiness. Again, Christians must pursue holiness. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse uh, 14. Again on the screen there. Yeah, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which, without which no one will see the Lord. Now look again there at the verse. verse uh, uh, we are to be striving. 
We are to be striving for holiness, just like we're striving for peace among one another. So we know it's within the context of this life that we are to be striving for holiness so that if our life is not characterized by a striving for that holiness, we will not see the Lord. And what that means is that if we do not see the Lord now in this life, as the great shepherd, as our savior, as the treasure, as our friend, as our greatest good, and thus strive to magnify him in this life through holy lives, then we will not get the opportunity to enjoy him as such in eternity. If you embrace the gospel, you must be pursuing holiness. Not an option. But we still, we still have this dissonance going on in our head and heart because we have to ask, is obedience contrary to a Christ-centered gospel? Or if we go back to our passage, we might be able to ask it the way Paul states it in verse 27, how is, how is my obedience worthy of the gospel? Well, how do we live in a ma manner worthy of the gospel? How do we do this? Well, the answer to all these, all these questions is found in how Paul addresses the Philippians in those two little words in our passage. My beloved. My beloved. It was customary for Paul to use that affectionate term address in all of his letters whenever he called God's people out for obedience. Interesting. And certainly is true here in the letter to Paul. Paul reveals his affection for the Philippians early on in the letter in verse 8 of chapter 1. Listen to this. He says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And there's even a more fuller expression of his affection for God's people in chapter 4 verse 1 where he writes, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown my beloved now these words, uh, uh, these words are, are words that we all long for because what it's saying is, is I love you. And these are words that every human being longed to hear. And if those words are withheld, they can have life-shaping consequences on one's psyche. The, the longing to have one's dry cup filled with words of love, if you don't get that, it changes you. And you begin to drive uh, into all kinds of behaviors to elicit some kind of permutation of you are loved. Or just the opposite. If you have individuals who are pouring into your life this expression of I love you, a, a genuine uh, sense of care and concern, uh, and they do it through words and actions of genuine love, then the fruitfulness of your soul will be evident to all. So if there's one thing we can do for our close friends or our children or our spouse or significant others is, is to pour into them words of affection, actions of genuine love. But there's a real fear in that. A fear in giving love away. A fear is, will it be reciprocated? Or just plainly, who will pour this kind of unconditional love into my soul? 
See, we can't give away what we don't have, so there's a real temptation, what, to hoard our small storehouse of love. And Paul wasn't any different than us. See, Paul, when he's using this word, isn't using a term of endearment that he came up out of his own sentiment. He was using a term of endearment that God first used on him. A term of endearment that is not dependent upon one's good works or bad works, but dependent upon God's unsearchable sovereign choice. See, it's amazing if you look up this, my beloved, and when God uses it, he always uses it within the context of his sovereign, unsearchable, sovereign choice, his decision to love a people. So Romans chapter one, verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's the effectual call of God on those in whom he has chosen. Or in the letter to the Colossians, Paul says to them, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. But we have to be realistic. The Romans, the Colossians, the Philippians, us. We're a real disappointment. We have to admit our own failures. Most of us here have lived long enough to be disappointed with our own performance, whether it be an isolated event or events or just your entire life story. And so if I'm disappointed, how much more God must be disappointed with me who knows my heart much better than I do and also knows the alternate universe that if I would only been obedient, killing sin and pursuing holiness, what that would have looked like. So as we, we are talking about change, uh, we, are, we all here have a lot of history of failure. Or we could just simply say, we could call it regrets. We got to deal with this regret. Paul was a man who lived with an incredible amount of regrets. He had come to grips with the fact that he had wasted more than half his life in opposition to Jesus Christ. And regret is the culture of the fall. So how can God call disappointing people like us you are loved. How can he call you beloved? Answer? In Christ. In Christ. The book before Philippians is Ephesians, so I'm going to turn us there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I think we have it on the screen too, yes. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Corey Johnson famously said last week, before the foundation of the world means before the foundation of the world. 
and that we should what? Be holy and blameless before him. Now here's the motive, the motive of his heart, the motive of the heart of God. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, capital B. Here is that, term, that, that, that endearing word again, and that beloved is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Father's supreme object of his love. The Son never disappointed the Father. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And we have been swept up into that pleasure. Where the Father, out of love for his Son, says to you, Beloved, Because Christ lived perfectly, died sufficiently, and rose victoriously, you and I can come out of hiding. <laughs> we are free to own up to, without fear, the darkest of our thoughts and motives, the ugliest of our words, our most selfish choices, and most rebellious and unloving actions. See, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In this verse, he not only promises to forgive you, but also to change you as well. See, that is what it means when he says he will purify you from all your unrighteousness. So we deal with regret. Paul dealt with regrets. We deal with regret first by, number one, enjoying the freedom of confession. Number two, we hold on to God's forgiveness. Jesus Christ purchased for me the forgiveness of my sins. Now listen to the extreme of that forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 34, when he speaks about the new covenant, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Think about it. God, God whose memory is inexhaustive and complete, chooses to remove our sins from his memory. <laughs> And even though our sins are a direct affront to his authority and devaluation of his worth, Christ paid for that injustice. And so the Father says, forgotten. And because he does this, he releases us from our bondage to regret. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to think the fact that the sin that I'm remembering, if I brought that to the Father, he'd say, what? What are you talking about? So he doesn't hold on to it because it has been justly dealt with in his son. And so what he wants us to do is move on. <laughs> Number three, rest in God's sovereignty. As you're dealing with, with regret, rest in God's sovereignty. Our lives are never out of God's control. Even your story of regrets. The story of our lives has been carefully administered by him in wisdom. His timing is always right. He has a lot of wise purposes going on here. Rest in his sovereignty. Four, clarify your identity. See, the longer we live the more we tend to take on sin and a kind of a problem-based identity. And it's tempting to let these things define us. Bad choices might have led you to divorce. 
Divorce is a very difficult human experience, but it is not an identity. You may have had an abortion. An abortion is a very difficult human experience, but it is not your identity. You may have screwed up in a relationship or in a really good opportunity. If we take all of our experiences on as if they were our identities, they will define us in terms of our potential change. And Paul was aware of this in his own life. And so he offers these words. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's identity, your identity, is not your experience of sin and some problem, but rather Christ's experience with sin and Christ taking on that problem. And if I remember right, we were singing a taunt. Where is your sting? Oh, death. Christ is alive. He took care of the sin. He took care of the problem. So our identity is no longer in our sin and no longer in our problems our identity is in Christ who rose again to new life and now he lives within us and you are his beloved. Clarify your identity and help plant a new harvest. See, uh, the one comfort and hope of every farmer and gardener and Cubs fan <laughs> is that there's always another season. And God is the author of new seasons and he is the giver of new seeds and new roots and new fruits so just plant a new harvest. And finally, six, celebrate eternity. Ultimately, that is what regret is. So when you experience regret, what are you really experiencing? You're longing for eternity. That's what you're really doing. So celebrate eternity as you experience now how nothing in us or around us operates consistently the way it was meant to. Paul Tripp, the Christian uh, counselor, writes about how to celebrate eternity like this. He says, let the anticipation grip you like a child three minutes from Disney World. <laughs> because in God's timing, heaven is in three minutes. Celebrate eternity. So do you want a wellspring, a never-running, dry source of love where you hear the words, you are loved that is not conditioned upon your performance, past, present, or future? Then come to Jesus. <laughs> and it's out of that wellspring that then we are obedient and then we kill sin. And that was true of the Philippian Christians. And so you look back in our passage uh, and you read these words. He says, as you have always obeyed, and that was positionally true for, the, uh, for these Christian uh, believers there. They were relying on Christ's obedience, but it was also progressively true in that they had entered into a state or condition of obedience, and yet they knew they weren't perfect people. They knew that they still needed to be killing sin in their life, and that's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to have a battle mentality, training on, using all the weapons of God's, uh, in God's arsenal to kill sin in our life. And we are not all holy, but we are going to be pursuing holiness. And think of the freedom that brings to us to kill sin and pursue holiness. See, this is what's going to happen is, you got up this morning, well, I already know what happened, and that is you sinned somewhere along the way. <laughs> And you're gonna go out in the day. We're gonna get out there and we're gonna kill sin and we're gonna, we're gonna pursue holiness. And we're gonna have kind of success and failures all the way through the end of this day. But I can guarantee you one thing, and that is this, that when you put down your head on the pillow, if you're in Christ, you 
are loved. And that'll happen again tomorrow. And the day after, and the day after, and you go to sleep, and you know one thing. There's one truth. You are the beloved because of Christ. So the great goal of the change we're talking about is the shining forth of the glory of God and the holiness and happiness of his people who rest in Christ. <laughs> wow. All right, what do you do? You obey. Kill sin, pursue holiness. Number two, how? How do you work out your own salvation? Well, uh, look at the next phrase in this verse here. He says, uh, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, already we have seen the relationship between Paul and the believers in Philippi as one that was really, really sweet. And there are some direct expressions of affection between them. So let me just read a few for you. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Philippians, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with all joy. Or verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, I read before, I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Or chapter 4, verse 1, again, I read it earlier. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. There is a wonderful affection between the church and this possible, uh, sorry, and this apostle. <laughs> and yet there is a danger. There's always a danger within us to rely too much on, to depend upon, to require too much of a man. And this might be why Paul, after he has expressed his confidence that, that his life will not only be spared, but that he will be released from prison to come to them again in person. He says back there in verse 27, he says, Now only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. The, the Philippian believers needed to completely Lean on the gospel, not just mostly on the gospel and partly on Paul's physical presence with him. So what does he say back in our verse, in verse 12? He says, I want you to do this much more in my absence. His absence is the trial and test to reveal who they are depending upon. Are they depending upon Christ or are they depending upon Paul? It's tempting to trust in a man or a woman, rather than the man. So how did God intend for us to trust in Jesus Christ, who is absent from us? Well, three things, spirit, word, and faith. So another passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Galatians 3, uh, verse 5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, just down the, down the road here. Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Now, Paul asked the question, trusting we know the answer. The Spirit works miracles. The Spirit works miracles. The greatest miracle, killing sin and pursuing holiness, by hearing with faith. Hearing implying that we are seeing or reading the Word of God. So let's look at these three. The Spirit. When Jesus tells his disciples that it is to their advantage to go away, he tells them, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then a little later, he tells his disciples in that evening, he says, when he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgments. It seems to be that the Christian life is not one of simple perfection, but rather the Christian life is one of conviction of sin, repentance, and belief. See, it is true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, of true righteousness, what is truly right, and then of judgment of that sin. And that seems to be fitting here within Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. The Spirit works the miracle of change as the Spirit takes the Word of God and we hear it, read and apply it, read and, 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 uh, or, or listen to it or read it, and we apply it to our life as He convicts us of the need for our change. Kill sin, pursue holiness. And He shows us what is right and then warns us of the judgment that will be ours if we are disobedient. And he does this by using the word. And there are two strategies the Holy Spirit uses here with the word. The first is command, warnings. That would be one strategy, command uh, dash warnings, and then promises. So command warnings. We've already considered one command warning this morning. I read for you Hebrews 12, 14. It says, strive for, there's the command, the holiness with which out, without which no one will see the Lord. There's the warning. Or Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Here's, here comes the command. Enter by the narrow gates. Here's the warning. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Or are there times when we hear even more specifics of what we are to be killing? Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, Paul writes, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or you are here these conditional imperatives so that we don't grow lackadaisical in our faith. So he wrote to the Colossians, and you who once were alienated and hostile mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here comes the warning. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The warning, that conditional statement, seems to be the producer of the implied command, in this case, of perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. Command warning. But the Holy Spirit also uses promises. So back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul is pressing on for more and more change in his life. He's pressing on for the killing of sin or, or the pursuit of holiness. Now look how he does it there in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now think of Jesus as the prize because he is the prize. <laughs> He lived an authentic human life, life as God had intended, and so if I conform my life to Christ, the prize, I will get what I long for and what every human being longs for, and that is an authentic human life. And so this is what compelled Paul forward to seize such a high prize. He realized, I need to seize this prize to know him because Christ has already seized me. Let me illustrate this. The promise, again, Paul recognizes as that Christ has already made me his own. Here's the illustration. Imagine that you are told that you're going to write the next greatest novel. It's going to be a huge success. Or perhaps we're more athletic type like to run, training for the marathon, and you are promised that you will win the marathon. Or perhaps you have a hobby that you love and enjoy and would love to turn it into a business and have your own business. You dream of that, and you are told that if you will start this business, you will be successful beyond your wildest dreams. But first, you got to do this. You gotta start writing. You gotta train. You gotta actually register for the marathon. You gotta actually line up. You gotta get online. You gotta run it. You gotta put the business plan together. You gotta be thinking through all your strategies. You gotta be actually be applying that, getting the loan. You gotta do it. But you still have that promise in your head. Now imagine having that promise in your head that as you're writing, all of a sudden something happens, and that is you have no more words. You're at mile 17, and you're facing that, oh my goodness, that mile and a half hill. You got unexpected expenses, things that came along that you had no idea was going to come, and it looks like it's going to be a complete failure, this business plan of yours. But you have that promise. So what do you do? You keep riding. You lean into the hill. You keep plugging along in that business plan. And this is exactly what was happening with Paul. Paul knew that Christ had already made him his own. And so Paul said, because of this, what do I do? I press on to make, known, to make him known. I press on to know him and make him known. The promise was what the Spirit was using to cause Paul to press on in obedience, press on in living a life of holiness and of killing of sin. Christ guarantees your success.
And then finally, we use the instrument of faith. Faith is that which tastes the reality of the promise, the success. So the entering into the taste and reality of what God promised is the power that presses us forward to sever the root of sin or to press on to forward to pursue holiness. Because here's the great goal. The great goal of change is the shining forth of the glory of God in the holiness and happiness of his people. The spirit is a decisive cause. Faith in the word of God is the instrument and change is the miracle. Yeah, heal a body. Heal a soul. That's the miracle. All right, so what do you do to work out salvation? You obey, kill sin, pursue holiness. How do you do it? You do it by faith through the Spirit who convicts you as you read and hear his command promises, I mean his commands, judgments, and promises. Finally, third, why do you work out your own salvation? Why do you work out your own salvation? Well, I think the answer is captured there in uh, the final words of our passage, which is, with fear and trembling. Now, it's interesting, Paul is the only New Testament author who uses these two words together, and it is an attitude of reverence and awe in the presence of God. So kind of a contrast, uh, it's not the terror of an unbeliever or of a sinner uh, uncovered by Jesus Christ. It's not a terror of the unbeliever that we're talking about here, but rather a reverence and a awe. Uh, so the question is, why did Paul add this to his command to work out uh, your own salvation? Well, the reason he did that is for our joy, for our joy. See, fear and trembling provides us with a sense of seriousness, that this is important. It's important because we know one day we will be held accountable for the freedoms that we have been given. So just think about a little bit of the freedoms that we have been given. This is not going to be an exhaustive list in any way, but here are a few. First of all, we have the freedom from the slavery of sin. Secondly, the cross won for us the ability to realize the fruit of the Spirit, that is the freedom to serve others graciously. The The cross won for us the free invitation to enter into the throne room of the universe with our prayers. And the cross has won for us the ability to know the mind of God. (laughs) That's crazy. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. The cross frees us to be servants of God. The cross frees us from demanding our rights. We don't have to demand our rights anymore. Check out uh, an interesting scenario, Matthew 17 24 through 27. The cross frees us to forgive when we've been sinned against. The cross enables us to be free to believe, according to John 9, 39 through 47, and so many more freedoms. So there is a seriousness of being held accountable for these freedoms, and yet God is never disappointed beloved. See, this is why we keep our children's crafts in a box in the basement. See, what we do is, you know, we have our five-year-old, and what do we do? We give them some resources, and we give them the freedom to use those resources to make a craft. And so they do that, and they 
They come and they come before you and they, in pride, they say, look what I did. And we look at it and we say, wow, that's, we don't say this to them, think it, that's junk. (laughs) And we go, wow, that's great. Because we really believe that. That's beautiful. And what do we do? We, we put it on the refrigerator. We take some pictures of it, send it, text it to some others. Look what my daughter and my son did. <laughs> and then we put it in a box and we put it in the basement. And they're about eight years old. And again, you know, we get some resources. Of course, we're doing this all the time. But eight years old, we get some resources. And we give them the freedom to use those resources. And they, again, put their hands to it and everything. They present it to you. And you look at it and go, well, that's more junk. <laughs> but what do we say? Oh, that's amazing. That's beautiful. Rot at your own hands using the freedoms that I have given to you. And so what do we do? We send some more pictures. We put it on our refrigerator. And then we put it in a box later on. And we put it back down into the basement. And we do that over and over again as they're growing up within our homes. And we're seeing improvement. And we're seeing wonder. But a lot of times, most of it's still going to be worth nothing. (laughs) Most of it's junk. And somewhere along the way, you start to clean out your basement and you have this box, of, you know, this box of crafts and eventually it goes to the landfill. But not with God. Oh no. No, he gives you freedoms and he gives you resources that you're accountable to be using and you put those together and you present this to him in your, in your infancy in Christ and God looks at that and goes, wow, my beloved, that's beautiful. <laughs> and then he stores it. And then as you grow older, you begin to have more resources and you have more understanding and you have more, re, you know, more freedoms that God has given you and you understand and you use that and you present this to God and he looks at it and goes, wow, that's amazing. Now, it's junk, right? In comparison to what God can do? <laughs> oh, but no. Now see, you're created in his image and that very affection, those, those very desires, those very interests that you have in that junk that is presented to you, where did that come from? That didn't come from you. That came from a God who is a marveling at the resources that you have and the freedoms that he has given you and that you have used them and you present them to him and he is excited about it and he saves them. But guess what? It never goes to the landfill. See, when we come into him face to face, he's going to bring it out and say, look, Look at my daughter and what she has done over her life. Look at my son. Oh, my beloved, this is beautiful. You store those crafts because God stores your killing of sin, pursuing holiness, everything in terms of growing in Christ. (laughs) You're the beloved. And so there is seriousness that we use these resources and there's joy in it. Secondly, fear and trembling, we have the great honor to present, to represent the king of the universe. Do you hear that? We have the great honor to represent the king of the universe whom we call Father. 
we have the great honor to represent the Savior of the world in whom God tells us to say, my brother. What an honor. An awe that this is our opportunity to take the freedoms and the resources God has given to us and to serve him. So why do we embrace the gospel and work out our salvation? Well, it's for our joy. For our joy. Joyful seriousness, joyful honor. And we do it for one more reason, and then we'll be done here, guys. And that is God's glory. God's glory. Fear and trembling. See, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 13 of Philippians 2, uh, yeah, Philippians 2 reveals to us that the decisive former performer of our obedience is God, and thus he ultimately gets the glory. But if he is that decisive performer, why doesn't he just do this more quickly? Why is it so slow? Well, we know the answer is not that God cannot do it more quickly because at the end of our lives, or if you are living when there's the second return of Jesus Christ, we will be changed into perfection at a twinkling of an eye. He could do it now, but he doesn't. In his wisdom, change is slow. First, because the aim of change is to glorify more than his power. See, think about the relationship to Satan. If God destroyed Satan's influence and presence in our world today, this would glorify his power in marvelous ways. Oh, I wish he would just do it. But God's aim is for the fullness of his beauty and his worth to be magnified in the way his people prefer him over what Satan offers. So God intends for Satan to be slowly defeated in this age, not merely by being shown to be weaker than Christ, but also by being shown less beautiful, less valuable, less desirable, and less satisfying. Think of it. The course of your lifetime, as you are faithfully working out, you are killing sin and you are, you are pursuing holiness, your thousands of thoughts and feelings and deeds of preferring Christ over sin through Christ's blood-bought, spirit-empowered defeat of temptation is glorifying God in ways beyond just his power. That's what you're doing. You came here today instead of doing something else because you, by the blood-bought, spirit-empowered understanding, thought this is a better place to be than somewhere else. And God is honored and glorified through you. (laughs) What an honor to be here today. He gives us that freedom and the resources to be here. And it's a great joy. Yeah, slow change. It glorifies more than his power. And slow change is a wise way, finally, for us to sense a true measure of our corruption and a true measure of God's grace. See, a lifetime of dealing with indwelling sin, the desperation we feel because of our ongoing sinfulness causes us to have a true measure of corruption. You think you're bad today? (laughs) Ten more years down the road, you're just going to be amazed how bad you are, (laughs) how corrupt you are how corrupt I am, my thoughts, my words, my actions. I'm getting a truer measure 
But you know what else I'm getting a truer measure of? The grace of God. <laughs> a truer measure of God's grace that as I have moments of victory and as I recognize his forgiveness, it causes me to glorify God for the grace he has showered upon me and upon you. The great goal of change is the shining forth of the glory of God in the holiness and happiness of his people. So join, join this great goal. Embrace Christ. Beloved, work out your salvation. Father, thank you. Thank you that you would join us into your story, a story that is glorifying you and glorifying you by making us more authentic people and happy people. So Father, our prayer is, is that you would make us more holy and our prayer is that you would make us more happy. As Father, we kill sin and as we pursue holiness in our lives, through your Holy Spirit, who convicts us by your word as we rest and trust in it. Please have your way. Father, we marvel that what Christ did on the cross is finished. And Father, you tell us through the new covenant by Jeremiah's voice, you tell us that you have forgotten our sins. So that when Jesus took that bread and broke it and poured that cup he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which you said for the forgiveness of your sins. And he added those two, those two words. This is the new covenant. And it reminds us again, Father, that as we take this, you don't remember our sins. But rather you say, you are loved. So Father, as we take it this morning, we pray, convict us. Cause us to confess and trust and come forward and enjoy again those words, you are loved. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.